Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org. This week's episode is a conversation I had around companionship with Joe Sihi. I very intentionally refer to companionship here as Joe approaches this work from a non-theistic, non-religious perspective. We discuss topics around finding meaning and universality and suffering, human connection, using silence to be in conversation, and remembering to practice having a sense of humor. Talking with Joe, I thought about the famous line from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. At SDI, we talk about the healing modality of spiritual companionship, and you can call it just companionship, or you could call it spiritual direction, guidance, friendship, call it what you like. But the work is about the relationship, the deep listening, and the meaningful story of the others that we companion. Well, Joe, good morning to you. It's a late afternoon Monday here, but I understand it's 7.30 Tuesday morning where you are. That's right. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. So I'd like to begin these conversations just by asking you about your work as a spiritual companion. And I'm especially interested to talk to you about how you understand the term spiritual. Maybe you can begin there. Maybe share a little bit about how you understand the word spiritual And then you can talk about your work as a spiritual companion. Sure. I've come to think about that word spiritual the way I used to think about the word natural or green when I was working in the environmental field for about 15 years. And I had a colleague of mine, uh, he was a professor who taught sustainable landscape design. And the first day of class, he would always ask for people to define what is green or natural. And, And they would go around the room and he basically wanted to show that it was impossible to define and it was, it meant so many things to so many different people that it's lost its meaning. And sometimes I feel that way about spirituality. I don't have a problem with it. And certainly younger people don't have a problem with it. It sounds like today, but for a lot of people that I've been working with, it has a lot of baggage. And so what I've been working really around is developing the nomenclature to talk about things like spiritual companioning, with different ways of describing it. So I'm very careful even about using the word spiritual because I know with a lot of the folks that I'm currently working with, it might be an impediment. It might make them unwilling to be vulnerable and open the way they need to be. Can you talk about your work then as a spiritual companion? Do you call yourself a spiritual companion? Is there other sort of nomenclature that you use? I run an organization called Social Health, Australia Social Health, And we really are trying to focus on the use of meaningful human connection to allow people to find meaning in difficult circumstances, usually associated with illness, transition, grief, loss, times of trouble and transition and uncertainty. And we help people find meaning in their suffering by allowing them to feel witnessed and to see their circumstances as universal more than personal and to uh, know oftentimes that there may be some good that emanates out of them, even though they can't see it at the time. So we talk about companioning more than, than spiritual 
companioning. And we talk a lot about meaning and purpose in the work we're doing. And what we're really trying to do is make this form of social, emotional, existential support as accessible as possible. And we found that by not framing it as spiritual care, spiritual companioning, it's opened up possibilities for working with people who may just be experiencing isolation and loneliness and don't feel like they want a role for the divine, or they may feel like they don't have the language to have a discussion, or they may not feel like they deserve to have a a spiritual conversation for any number of reasons. There are a lot of people, although I've had a very positive relationship with religion most of my life, I've run into a lot of people who do not and who don't want to bring that into the conversation that they're having. So we're being really sensitive as we move forward with this idea. So rather than calling ourselves one thing or the work, we're being adaptive. And so depending on the setting, it may be the practitioners that we're bringing forward and vetting for having a certain amount of reflective listening and interpersonal competencies and support to do this work effectively and safely. They may be called different things. But in their first project, interestingly enough, they are referred to as community companions. Our first project is supporting older adults at risk for isolation and loneliness. And we're connecting them with people in the community who we've been upskilling, but most of them have pretty great competencies to begin with. They're former social workers and psychologists and counselors and pastoral cares. And they're engaging in conversations and using as prompts the arts and nature to recognize lenses of meaning that have been identified by an organization down here called Meaningful Aging Australia and an academic named Elizabeth McKinley. And we've been sort of using that model as a way to sort of get into conversations and hopefully allow people to look at their lives as opposed to just having one-on-one conversation. What are some icebreakers that you might use in a session with somebody? Like when you're first introducing yourself to a companion for the first time, how do you begin to you know, sort of open somebody up to sharing their story and to exploring meanings? It's a good question. I always think of that quote that is allegedly attributed to Miles Davis, but I supposedly didn't say it, but the notes that you don't play often being as important as the ones that you do. A lot of silence. <laughs> We're really working with our practitioners to encourage them to use silence as a way to prompt conversation and allow it to sort of flow out of that and be very careful with questions. And I find that it's a little easier in the work that we're doing because we know that there are people that are in pain and do want to talk about it. And so we can just wait for that. One of the frustrations I had when I was working as a hospital chaplain was that I'd walk into a room and I wasn't sure whether or not they wanted me to be in there because we would sort of do rounds. And oftentimes I would leave probably too early, but I just didn't want to be bothering someone who in their bed on their back and maybe in a fair bit of pain. But when I knew someone wanted to talk, when I knew someone had called for me, I could wait there and I had patience to just wait and wait and wait. And that question from them would emerge and I was there to to witness it and respond. I can't really think of any sort of great prompt as a question. And again, I, I, I think silence, I find to be the best way to sort of get into the conversation. Yeah. So I am a 
spiritual guide and training and I've heard this and I understand it and I, in learning about the power of silence to be a prompt and to just hold space for people and whatever it is that they need. And yet I still feel like silence is awkward. Culturally it is. And I learned this years ago. I was doing some work as an investigative reporter and insurance companies I discovered and lawyers would use silence as a way to make people talk. If you're intimidating someone and you, you don't say anything, they'll eventually talk because we're just taught to fill in conversations. But the problem that I have seen and I've experienced it with myself is you can get into that problem of chit chat and you can have this lovely conversation about nothing. And this is what we do. You know, we talk about the weather and it's culturally appropriate to fill in space. When you can make it okay, even sacred, to just be there and allow people to sit with that silence and know it's okay and say nothing. It's tough, but some incredible things can emerge from that silence, but it takes some work. I have a colleague, my friend Annie, who says uh, she has a four second rule and she bites her tongue when she's really getting into some stuff, when she knows she needs to hang back. She's trained herself to wait four seconds before responding. Ah. That's a good discipline. I would probably need those kinds of prompts for myself as practice. It's good. I think throughout the rest of our lives, I think I'm a pretty awful listener a lot of the times because my work is often involving advocacy. So I'm trying to explain to people what this is like I'm doing here today. And that doesn't make for a good listener. So I find working as a spiritual companion really forces me to get in touch with those listening skills. My wife, I know, appreciates it greatly. Yeah. Tell me more about the advocacy work that you're doing. So right now we have the challenge of sort of making the case for social health support, for lack of a better term. The idea that companioning can be an effective tool for uh, making feel people experience more meaning and purpose and connection in their lives and can be an effective means of mitigating the impacts of social isolation and loneliness. And that's the challenge, especially because a lot of our work, I think, bumps up into mental health. And so we're trying to say, well, there's, there's something else going on, which I think we're really dealing with existential loneliness at the core. I'm a big fan of Johan Hari, who two years ago wrote Lost Connections about our problem with isolation and loneliness. And he said, we've been framing this as a mental health issue. We're treating depression and anxiety, but we really evolved to live together. You wouldn't tell a bee that's lost its hive that has a pollen deficit disorder. We need to figure out a way to repair those connections. So that's what we're doing. In some ways, it feels like a surrogacy of sorts. We're trying to repair, restore these connections that we had naturally. And I think in the context of suffering, it's really important because things that really rock our world, the loss of a spouse, 50 years, for example, when you experience that as a community, there's some context and there's a way to share that. When we do it by ourselves, it hurts horribly. And that's the case with so many awful things. We take things personally. So we need to you know, have a context for experiencing these things. And to a large extent, what we're really doing in addition to just bringing forward qualified practitioners and finding places for them to work is to make the case that this work is important right now. 
And that's become a bit easier, quite frankly, because of the, the pandemic and the growing consciousness around social isolation and loneliness and the public health costs and personal costs. But switching my brain from being an advocate for the cause to working as a companion can be tricky. But yeah. I'm glad I had that opportunity. I can imagine. And do you understand your work to bring awareness to the sort of isolation and loneliness that people experience? Do you understand your work to be about kind of awakening people to exploring isolation and loneliness in their own life as you're companioning people? Are you seeking to guide people out of loneliness and towards community and companionship? How do you understand that relationship? That's a great question because you're talking about something that solitude is great, but feeling alone, it's a funny thing. We were talking about, I've been really impacted by Christian mystics and the desert monastics, you know, and even people like Edward Albee, who once said, I think the most spiritual thing about the desert is it just doesn't give a shit. And feeling like you're insignificant and by yourself can produce some solace. But really what we're talking about is that people who are suffering for any number of reasons can't share that, can't feel witnessed and feel the universality of that pain. And that's what we're trying to do something about. So it is a bit of a stopgap work. And then with a lot of the people that we're working with, we work with a lot of older adults, and I think that's always going to be the case. These dark nights of the soul, these difficult moments, if people can push through them, there's a great deal of evidence that people can really be transformed. They can build resiliency, but really they can be tools and opportunities for spiritual awakenings. So that's a big part of our work too. But I think the focus primarily right now is on showing that this form of support really can make a difference in people's lives. It's hard for some people to understand that. Yeah. You mentioned spiritual awakening, and I would love to hear you unpack how somebody who is practicing secular spiritual companionship understands spiritual awakening. What does that look like? Well, we have that problem, or I have that problem with the term spiritual, because some people would automatically think that there's something happening in the heaven, and then people are shut down from wanting to hear more. And I know resiliency is overused. But what I've been learning about more recently is that I think of it as sort of inner work and that if we can think mindfully and be open to pain and these parts of life that aren't always pleasant, but accept them as adversity is is a wonderful teacher, you know? And if we can realize not only is it gonna, it doesn't have to debilitate us, but it can really allow us to move into a different area and experience growth that we wouldn't have been able to experience otherwise. It would be what my religious friends would consider a blessing. And that is a tricky thing for people to understand, I find, that being able to move through those moments. I guess what we've been focusing on more is probably stopping the debilitating aspects of, of those events, which can just paralyze people. And I've seen this a lot where someone is so fearful. I have a colleague of mine, an 88-year-old member of my ice hockey club that I saw at the rink a few months back who was really paralyzed by complicated grief. And I saw him at the rink and 
his wife had died a year earlier. His granddaughter had suicided a couple months before that. He was really bereft and he was so afraid of falling apart. And I just met with him a couple of times, but it was enough for him to know that he was going to move through that. Really, he was fearful about falling apart in a way that he wouldn't be able to really recover. And knowing through really companioning to take steps in the direction of knowing he can move through this, he turned a corner by his own admission in a way that he wasn't able to turn with a year of work under a psychologist and psychiatrist. And I've seen a lot of moments like that that make me really believe in this process and what it can do. Because ultimately, it is about that relationship and that belief. What I've realized is that there has to be a context for connection. So you have to have people on the front line that obviously have the competencies, the compassion, and the interpersonal reflective listening skills to do this work. But for a lot of people, there needs to be that connection. They don't feel comfortable doing it with a complete stranger. And so for a lot of people, religion is a wonderful context for connection. But for some folks, it's never going to work. For him, my 88-year-old friend, it was wearing the same hockey jacket that allowed him to feel that it was okay to talk to me. That's all it took. So interestingly enough, one of the projects that we're working on here that we're teeing up for this year is finding people in clubs, community organizations where there is already a connection and then sort of upskilling them, teaching them about reflective listening and companioning so that for club members, when there's an event, they know that Bob's the guy that they can talk to if they want to. That's really beautiful. I love that story. As a guide, we honor the agency of the person that we are companioning. The goal is for them to connect to what is true within them through silence or whatever. And so I love that the hockey jersey was yeah. for that. And there's a guy who, and he brought up religion on his own. He had some funny story about Gordy Howe and turning the other cheek and then the other cheek. And, you know, he was just a tough old Scottish guy. <laughs> but he so wanted to connect and be vulnerable on his own terms. And yeah, it was a big lesson. We're working with him actually to try to introduce this to sporting clubs, which are huge down here. But interestingly enough, and he said this afterwards when we were having a debrief, he had guys from the team that walked by, said hi, and he had guys that were checking in on him. I know this for a fact that he'd known for 40 years, but he didn't feel comfortable being vulnerable and they didn't know how to hold space for him to do that. So it does take the combination. One of the things we're working on right now, there's a new field called social prescription that came out of the UK. And what's happening is that a lot of medical professionals, mostly GPs, they're realizing a lot of people are showing up to their offices with non-medical issues and isolation and loneliness are a couple of them. So they want to be able to refer to the community people that could support them. But there's no standards around this and there's no guarantee that the organization that you're referring to will have people on the front lines that know how to handle folks. And so that's what we're trying to do is to say these could be really wasted opportunities. We're doing some work with a group, 150 medical students who are just started a project called Conversations in Isolation, where they're having phone conversations with people who want to talk, hoping that they can, you know, really do as much as they're capable of and understand that it's not just enough to chat. That's fine. And you comfort people when you do come across someone who wants to go deeper, who really 
needs to, to have someone that has the ability to hold space to allow them to do that. You want to be able to do that. So we're trying to find ways of showing the medical community that we could get much more out of social prescription if we start to vet people properly and support them. Yeah, that's amazing. So just so I understand, are you also trying to equip medical professionals with some of these companioning tools? Am I hearing you right in that? We're working with medical students in this case, and there's going to be a bit of training. I think we're just starting this work, and it's really going to be developing a reflective practice that works for them. And I think that's where there's opportunities for continuous learning and allowing people to debrief. And what I think is so important about this work, they're not doing it in isolation. They're connecting with others. And that's one of the things that's missing for our last training. I wanted to bring in this nun to talk about how religious orders of women do this, because I think they do it really well. I think nuns are amazing. When you think about the ones I've met have always been so joyful. And I always think, God, it's such a tough life. How do you do that? Well, they recall regularly, so front and center on their minds, why they're doing that work. And they remember that as a community. And I think anyone that's being of service to others needs to do the same thing. It's it's sometimes referred to as compassion satisfaction as an antidote to Mm. compassion fatigue. Not only do you mitigate the secondary traumatic stress impacts, as they're called, that lead to compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and burnout, but you actually recall what makes this work meaningful and you connect to a community of people who are in it with you. That's really powerful. Joe Sehi is the Executive Officer of Social Health Australia and is based in Melbourne. Social Health Australia brings forward innovative approaches to companioning people in crisis and combating the growing problems of social isolation and loneliness. Their mission is to make times of transition, uncertainty, and loss not only less debilitating, but also opportunities for building resilience and creating community. Joe has a wide range of experience as a non-theistic spiritual director and pastoral caregiver. He's a Peabody award-winning journalist. Joe is also the founder of the Green Burial Council, director of Earth Funerals, and a senior fellow at the Environmental Leadership Program. Support for this podcast comes from Siena Retreat Center. Are you passionate about the spiritual growth and transformation that comes from the practice of spiritual guidance? Siena Retreat Center, located on Lake Michigan between Chicago and Milwaukee, is seeking an experienced leader in the area of spiritual companioning. The full-time position of Spiritual Guidance Coordinator involves the collaborative leadership of the center's two-year spiritual guidance training program. We invite you to explore the job description at www.sienaretreatcenter.org. Let's talk about the notion of burnout and compassion fatigue as you refer to it, because it's interesting because I am somebody who, like, I don't think like compassion comes naturally. Like I think it takes practice and I'm also, I would consider myself an introvert. Like not that I don't like being with people, but that I get sort of tired being with people, you know, I have to like recharge by going into solitude and 
Can you talk a little bit about compassion yeah. fatigue and some ways to sort of treat that and be aware of it? Well, you bring up a really good point and it's great that you can say that honestly, because I don't think our brains are all wired the same way. I think some of us have evolved to where our brains really fire up for acting altruistically, for example. It doesn't make we're better people. It means that some of us just get more out of it. And the shadow side of that is that people who do have their brain fire up that way, they oftentimes overextend themselves and they are not great with boundaries. And that's where I've really struggled. So I love being of service, but it'll kill me eventually if I don't have things in place to make sure that I don't go too far. And it happens all the time in this field. One of the best antidotes is, as I mentioned, reflective practice. But that's actually what got me into this field again, because I had a really bad bout of burnout when I transitioned from the States and had left a nonprofit I was heading. And it took a couple years really for me to recover and to figure out what I wanted to do. And I have to say, what I was drawn toward was supporting others doing this work. And I still, to this day, don't feel comfortable doing that much of it. I, I don't feel like I have the capacity to really be there the way perhaps I used to be. So I'm trying to support others, almost like a coach and support person. But it's not really greatly appreciated. I think there's growing consciousness around it. I've recently plugged into something called the Wellbeing Project that's been funded by the Ashoka Foundation and a couple other groups in the States. And they've determined that you know, there was so much burnout in the nonprofit field, especially with change agents, social entrepreneurs in particular were flaming out. And what they realized is the best guard against that was having them develop an inner life, being conscious about their work, talking about it, debriefing, and doing it with others. So I think we all need to do that. And that's what I've learned from mindfulness, too. It creeps up on us if we're not dealing with it on a regular basis. But if we are, and we have a safe space to talk about those things, not only does it prevent us from really becoming debilitated, but it allows us to mediate meaning in that work and see things that we wouldn't have seen and experience joy in the work that might otherwise be missing. What comes to mind for me is peer review or supervision for traditional spiritual director. But when I think of that, I think of accountability. But I think what you're offering, it sounds similar, but it has to me like a much more generative outcome. It's the remembering recalling why you do this work and why it's important and why it's valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. You were involved with an SDI symposium, right? In Australia. Yes. Upcoming symposium. I was looking at exploring a comparison analysis with what John Kabat-Zinn did around mindfulness and what implications it has for spiritual companioning to be reimagined in a non-theistic way. I mean, I think that mindfulness has worked for all sorts of reasons. But one of the big ones is that people don't see it attached to any philosophy or theology. And he was very careful because John Kabat-Zinn is a Buddhist himself and he didn't want to feel like he was shilling for Buddhism. But he was really careful to make it evidence-based and to really roll that out carefully and thoughtfully. And so I think that we could do the same thing with spiritual companioning. And I think that there's, again, developing new nomenclature around it, making it accessible in a way, making it person-centered and evidence-based. So that's really what I've been trying to look at. And I think ultimately there's sort of going to be a blend of those two things. I think mindfulness and companioning go well together. 
because ultimately it's about experiencing in the here and now what's happening, you know, paying attention to what's happening right now. And I think mindfulness should encourage those of us in the field who want to make this more accessible. That's fascinating. So there's a lot happening right now in the world and here in the U.S. especially. Well, every, everywhere there's a lot happening, but there's a lot happening in the U.S. And sometimes I'll talk to people about mindfulness and being present to what is. And that includes being present to a lot of suffering and, and people don't want to go there at least if they haven't done so before. Understandably, who wants to confront their pain or the, or the ways in which they may be contributing to injustice without knowing it or dealing with a divorce even? That's interesting and I get it. It's hard for me to be like, well, you need to do it because it's healthy, you know? <laughs> or uh, I don't know where I'm going with that, except well, I'm you, sure you- You wouldn't want to live a life where you're disconnected from suffering. You want it in your consciousness. But you also want to be able, I think, to not have it overwhelm you. And for me, that's having a sense of humor. I think Viktor Frankl said that it was humor was really the way the soul to protect itself. It was such a a regard. And that's something that I've tried to do throughout my life is to have opportunities for levity as counterpoints because we can get overwhelmed. But I don't want to just be laughing. What kind of existence is that? And there are people that are happy to escape in that. But that's never made sense to me. I don't know too many people that it really <laughs> makes sense to in the long term. But I think we need to have that balance, or I need to have that balance anyway, because I, I just can't imagine living consciously without being connected to human suffering. So interesting to see, I know what's going on right now, and people really wanting to be a part of painful things that they're seeing. They're not running away from what's going on. I'm encouraged by that, that people are wanting to own it and bring it on and make other people's pain theirs. I used to love what the Jesuit liberation theologians used to talk about, you know, when, when one person is suffering in a community and we're really living in a community, we all are. And when we can exist and there's so much pain and suffering in the world and we can somehow compartmentalize it, we're not living in community. And I just don't want to live like that in such a disconnected way where I can, what else am I putting in a box you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and not understanding? Yeah. So it's really about being in the present moment. It's just about embracing everything that you experience in your life, the good and the bad and honoring all of it. That's right. Yeah. And not human suffering is going to be with us. Again, Viktor Frankl's great quote, we're not destroyed by suffering, we're destroyed by suffering without meaning. We we don't have to fear suffering and we shouldn't. It's going to be with us. And thank you for the reminder of humor. I put on, it was like Sunday night. It was a rough weekend here in the States. And I put on a Simpsons and I was just like cracking up for the 30 minutes of that episode. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot what it was like to laugh. You know, it feels good. It's cathartic. It's healing. It doesn't gloss over the suffering or what's going on but it helps. It restores. Yeah. Well, Joe, this has been really fun. Is there anything else that you would like to share or talk about that we haven't covered so far? Yes, it's sort of, it was connected to what we were talking about before, but as I was thinking about reflective practice and the need to sort of, if you're going to be doing this in service of others, you need to be doing this work and you need to be 
engaged in the process yourself of really looking at things and thinking consciously, even when it's uncomfortable. You were talking about in the questions before about what kind of questions do do lead with with humanists. And I was going to say, it seems that the process is the same because you're really holding people with this work in living in the question and not finding answers, solutions. That's what I'm really attracted to about this work, that it isn't solution-focused. The alongsidedness is really powerful, but that's also quite countercultural. It is very countercultural. Yeah. And it's why spiritual directors have probably, I think, have struggled. You know, people like getting answers and they go to coaches and they want bullet points. And that's not what this work is about. So it's really hard for people to understand, appreciate it, the power that lies in this process. It's very subtle, but so profound. And I know because I've experienced it personally. I mean, my life has been changed by companionship. I wouldn't be the person that I am today without at a couple of important junctures receiving spiritual direction. I know I wouldn't have understood unconditional love. And I'm grateful for all the work that I've been allowed to do with my spiritual directors, which is why I'm motivated to pay it forward. I hope we all can figure out a way to make companioning more accessible and available. I think it's a a wonderful thing that you're doing, and this is a big part of it. So Thanks and keep up the good work. Of course, you're welcome. And thank you for sharing your story. This is why I do this podcast is to hear from people like you doing this work and you know, doing it in, I wouldn't say a unique way, but finding the essence of the work and exploring that really deeply is helpful for me. And I hope helpful for people listening. So thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your sharing. Glad to be here. Thanks. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.